0: Jeffrey Epstein was arrested in 2006 following an investigation into his sexual activities with teenage girls, his case ended in a lenient plea bargain. He pleaded guilty to soliciting prostitution and served only 13 months in a county jail and then resumed his jet-setting lifestyle. He, his rearrest in 2019 on federal sex trafficking charges was largely the result of a hard hitting series in the Miami Herald that was written by investigative reporter Julie K. Brown, who has revisited the case and her two year investigation into Epstein in a new book called Perversion of Justice The Jeffrey Epstein Story. It's published by Day Street, and I'm very pleased that it brings Julie K. Brown to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Didn't Jeffrey Epstein grow up in Coney Island? (laughs) What was his childhood like?
1: Uh, He was uh, a precocious young man, a young boy, and uh, very, very smart, played uh, instruments, musically inclined, uh, picked up on um, mathematics when he was pretty young, uh, to the point that he en- ended up getting a scholarship to a pretty prestigious um, school that, that specializes in science and math.
0: And then uh, he went to work for Bear Stearns. Was that his first major job?
1: Well, he, he first went to work for a, a private school in um manhattan um and there's some speculation about how he got that job because he didn't really have a college degree yet he was hired by the dalton school um coincidentally it was um the previous attorney uh uh, it was william barr's father donald Barr, Hmm. who hired him we believe hired him at dalton um so there's been some questions raised about Uh, why this man who had no college degree was able to get a job at one of the most prestigious
0: schools in Manhattan. Considering his uh, later history, wouldn't teaching in a school with young women be rather dangerous?
1: Well, you know, I think hindsight is always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. although there, there, there's been some uh, – a, a few people that knew him back then mentioned that he he had a bizarre kind of eclectic personality uh, flirting a lot with, with the young girls in class. But there's no – has been no evidence that he ever abused girls at the school.
0: What did he do to attract very wealthy clientele after he went – out uh, cre- and created his own investment firm?
1: Well, one of his first clients uh, was Les Wexner, who was the founder of the limited stores and uh, a number of other um, stores um, and retail uh, giants such as Victoria's Secret. Uh, hmm. And he, somehow he persuaded Mr. Wexner t- to basically turn over almost all his money to allow uh, Epstein to invest it uh, for him. And, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, we find out years and years later, you know, w- when my story appeared, um, Mr. Wexner said that he he basically built that Jeffrey Epstein and basically built him out of um, hundreds of hundreds of thousands oh, wow. or millions of dollars.
0: Well, but uh, he was able to attract very wealthy clientele, uh, didn't he accept only clients who could invest over a billion dollars? They they must have trusted him with that kind of money.
1: Well, you know, the one thing we do know now about Jeffrey Epstein is that he was uh, pretty good at um, exaggerating uh, who he knew and, and the connections that he had. Uh, We have, you know, now after this has happened, a lot of people have looked into his background and a lot of things he said or claimed that he he had or people that he knew he didn't know as well as what he was uh, leading people to believe. But the few people that he did know, for example, Bill Clinton, and then we know Prince Andrew, he used those connections to get other important connections. So he was strategic in how he made Uh, You know, connections and and especially political connections, academic connections, etc.
0: And not just Clinton and Andrew, Donald Trump. Didn't Donald Trump once say that Epstein was, quote, a lot of fun to be with? It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are on the younger side.
1: Right. Well, Trump was on his plane, uh, on Jeffrey Epstein's plane as well. He uh, they were quite good friends, um, you know, a long time ago. I, I think that they both shared some of the same <laughs> obsessions with women and and, um, you know, younger on the younger side. Uh, there's no evidence that Trump was involved with ha- having relations with minors, but they nevertheless shared that. And eventually uh, Jeffrey Epstein admired some of the business um Uh, projects that that Trump was involved in, such as his modeling agency. Trump had this modeling agency and Epstein then formed his own modeling agency uh, and he did it because he wanted to have this similar kind of model pipeline that Trump was able to uh, manage as part of his uh, modeling company.
0: Oops. Didn't Trump, uh, 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 was Epstein always attracted to young women rather than women of his own age, or is that something that developed? Um, when did he start bringing teenage girls several a day to his Palm Beach mansion?
1: Well, the earliest that, that has been, um, you know, recorded, so to speak, is in the late that 90- This started around the late 1990s. Where How old was he, he at was- the time? I'd have to.
0: Yeah. I'd okay. have to
1: figure that out. I but he was think.
0: already a, an, a, an older adult. man. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he was in his forties at the very least. He's probably in his forties, and uh, he, w- he had a, you know, a girlfriend, uh, Gielan Maxwell, who was a British socialite, lived in New York, and she had met Epstein years ago through her family.
0: Her and, father was a prominent publisher, Robert Maxwell.
1: Yes. And, uh, you know, he, Robert Maxwell, her father um, sort of died in mysterious circumstances, either fell off or jumped off or was killed on his yacht. And this left the family in dire straits because it was learned after his death that he had been bilking uh, his company and the employees of his company out of um, you know, millions and millions of dollars. So um, Geelan, uh, you know, escaped to New York to escape the scandal and sort of uh, reinvented herself uh, as this party girl socialite, uh, you know, and she and Epstein um, basically hooked up and became boyfriend and girlfriend for a short time. Uh, Of course, she was not she was getting older, and Epstein liked younger girls. And uh, in order to ha- help support her lifestyle, she stuck with him as you know an employee of the sorts of his. And one of her jobs working for Epstein was to go to spas and other places around Palm Beach to try to recruit girls. Who would be massage? Who would give Epstein massages, which we now know weren't really massages at all?
0: So, explain the whole massage thing. That was uh, they would be invited to give him a massage, and then things would uh, that would lead to sex.
1: Well, basically, what happened was, uh, you know, I think that that initially uh, we know of some women that she uh, recruited from like the colleges, which would have made them, you know, just over the age of consent, which in Florida, the age of consent is 18. So she started with the colleges. And then from there, she somehow gravitated toward younger girls in this time period where she went to spas, uh, health clubs, even, um, you know, high schools and recruited them by saying, uh, a couple of different things. She had a couple of different lines. She would speak to them and try to find out a little bit about them. You're beautiful. I have um, you know, a, 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 an employer who is looking for an executive assistant. Sometimes that's all it was. It was, he needs somebody to, to work for him. Uh, you need to meet him. He will pay you a lot of money, that kind of thing. And then there were times when they, she realized if they were really pretty and it seemed like they were aspiring to be in fashion or in modeling, she would say, "I have a benefactor who is going to help you with your modeling career. You should come talk to him. Do you have a portfolio?" And there were all different lines, but one of the recurring lines that she used was that she had uh, a. a employer that wanted a a full-time massage therapist. And uh, when you come and you just meet him, you'll be able to travel the world because he wants someone with him all the time. You'll see places you'll never see, you know, in your lifetime otherwise. And so this was how it started. And once she got a couple of those younger girls sort of in that pipeline, He managed to manipulate those girls into bringing him more girls. So it just spiraled into this pyramid scheme, essentially.
0: But he paid them for their services.
1: He did, but remember... um,
0: I'm not saying that excuses anything. That's just all part of the the same problem. Love, Love had nothing to do with it.
1: No, it didn't. But he was promising them, many of them, that he was going like he would say, "Can I see your your report card? Let me see what your grades look like. Let me see your application to college. I can help you get into college." He he manipulated them. These were girls that the girls that they targeted for the most part were girls who came from uh, they were very vulnerable. They had either been sexually abused before or they were um, in families that were broken families. Some of them were in foster care. Uh, A couple of them were in, you know, juvenile delinquent kind of um, um, educational facilities. Uh, So they purposely preyed on those kinds of girls, number one. And number two, the other thing is they didn't didn't go to the girls and say, look, we're going to pay you $200 to have sex with this guy. Mm -hmm. They use fraud and coercion to, to make them believe that they were actually going there to either get a job, advance themselves somehow, or to become a massage therapist. They didn't so, – and under law, you can't do that. And then all of a sudden, just turn around and start molesting someone that came there for a job, for example.
0: Didn't a parent complain in 2005 that Epstein had sexually abused her 14-year-old daughter? is did that lead to an, an arrest
1: yeah that that actually was the case that sort of broke the whole thing that he was doing wide open they had had the Pumpage town of Palm Beach, police had had some complaints before that there was a lot of traffic coming in and out of his house. and A lot of it was women. And they had uh, at one time, they they responded to a complaint that there was a strange car in his driveway. And when the police went to check it out, there was a young girl in the car. This was before, two, you know, the 2005 um, uh, event, you know, where, where the mother complained. And the police said, you know, what's going on here? And she said, well, I just came to pick up something from Mr. Epstein. And the butler comes out and he realizes who the girl is. She's one of Epstein's regulars. And uh, she's basically very uncomfortable. She wants to get out of there. The butler hands her an envelope. And the police say, what's the envelope for? And eventually he says that it's it's, you know, money. And the, the cops sort of wink, wink, like, what's she, you know, she's doing massages. And he go. the cop says, well, what kind of, what, what is she massaging there? You know, and it was sort of, they let it go. And that was the end of that until this other mother complained that her stepdaughter apparently had um, been uh, molested by Epstein.
0: Did that lead the police to do a, a deeper investigation?
1: Yeah, they what they did was they um, started, they went to interview her, and when they interviewed her, to their surprise, she said she had been brought there by another girl and another girl, you know, two other girls, and they went to those other girls, and those girls said they were originally brought there by two other girls, so it snowballed, every girl they found that pointed them to another girl. And this is how the pyramid worked, where, you know, a girl would be led to believe she was going there to give a massage. She would go up to this bedroom, uh, master bedroom bath area. And, you know, he would come in wrapped in a towel, basically drop his towel hmm. and start touching them, you know, in places that he, he shouldn't um, while talking to them and sort of, you know, coaxing them to do more and more and more, you know, and, you know, the regulars that he finally got, he got by offering them more and more money. And then they would try to, they would do something else until, it, it, you know, with some of the girls, it, it finally led to full intercourse.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is investigative journalist Julie K. Brown, winner of the George Polk Award in Journalism, for uh, her coverage of this story. Uh, now she's written a book about it called Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein Story, published by Day Street. Um Wasn't Ken Starr an unusual choice to lead Epstein's defense? I mean, he was famous for uh, going after Bill Clinton on his affair with Monica Lewinsky.
1: Yeah, that's kind of uh, ironic, isn't it? Uh, Well, Epstein had a brilliant, um, you know, strategy for his defense. Uh, You know, it was a time when uh, George Bush was in the White House and the administration was largely Republican, uh, so he needed someone who was familiar with the Republican people that were running the Justice Department. And certainly, uh, Ken Starr was in that category because uh, one of his uh, proteges um, was a woman who worked in the Criminal Division, and and he knew a number of other you know, top people in the Justice Department. So he came in sort of in an effort to squash the federal uh, prosecution. They argued that this was never supposed to be a federal case, that it should have stayed in the state. The state um, attorney in Palm Beach had already basically um, said he didn't want to prosecute uh, Epstein. And that's why the feds uh, initially took over. But um, Starr's assignment, so to speak, and his the reason for hiring him was to pressure the Justice Department in Washington uh, to not uh, prosecute him federally. And essentially, he was successful because that's what happened; he wasn't prosecuted federally.
0: But aren't sex trafficking cases usually under the jurisdiction of federal courts?
1: They are, but um, what, of course, uh, his uh, Je- Jeffrey Epstein's defense lawyers were arguing was that it wasn't sex trafficking, that, you know, there were a lot of different rationales for this. Um, one of which was that, you know, they they believed anyway that they were going to have to prove that he crossed state lines in order uh, to do this. And, and there was really no evidence that the girls that he abused in Palm Beach were taken over state lines. <laughs> but what the prosecutor's were using as a mechanism for federal um, jurisdiction was similar to what they were doing in uh, pornography cases that they were prosecuting, in that the the, the people who were purveyors of pornography and getting prosecuted around this time were people who largely use uh, the computers. So they were using the internet. So what they were going to try to get Epstein on was using the telephone because uh, he, you know, called some of these girls, he made the appointments, and so did people who worked for him. So they were using that as a mechanism sort of to to um, give them a federal jurisdiction over the case.
0: But it didn't happen. Uh, interestingly, Epstein, uh, in all fairness, had donated mostly to various Democratic campaigns. So, that, so that's why he... Uh, He got a legal team together that had political connections to the White House and to the Republican Party.
1: Right. Almost every lawyer that he hired had some kind of a connection to uh, the prosecuting team. You know, um, there was also Jay Lefkowitz, uh, who worked, who, like Ken Starr, worked um, for the same law firm that Acosta had had worked for uh, earlier in his career. And, and they were also members of the Federalist Society. And this is a conservative group of m- mainly of lawyers who often are in the forefront of picking Supreme Court justices. And Acosta's main ambition was to be a Supreme Court justice. So here you have two very powerful lawyers in a former law firm that, that Acosta was a member of who who were also a part of this society that helps uh, pick Supreme Court justices. So that was just one example. There were many that I outlined in the book of how he picked his lawyers who had connections directly uh, or even indirectly to the prosecutors that were, you know, looking at the case.
0: Alexander Acosta was Miami's top federal prosecutor. And as you're suggesting, he allowed Epstein's lawyers unusual freedom in dictating the terms of the non-prosecution agreement?
1: Well, one of the things that I discovered when I was working on the series was, you know, I, I was able to put together a lot of the communications that went back and forth between um, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors. And it sort of, it was you know, to say the least, mind boggling how chummy uh, they were in these emails and how every time his lawyers demanded that they do something like we're not going to agree to this part of the deal, um, every single time the prosecutors backed out. Um, You know, one of the things was that one of the bigger sticking points was that um, Epstein Uh, was that they didn't want these victims to find out that there was even a plea deal at all because they were probably correctly worried that the victims would object to the fact that he was getting such a lenient plea deal. So what they did on purpose was force the prosecutors to not tell anybody about it and Mm -hmm. eventually to seal it. So they kept what they were doing um, you know, under wraps for a long enough time for Epstein to go into court and boom, boom, it's over, and none of the victims were ever told about it.
0: Do we know how many girls he was accused of molesting?
1: It, at that time, it was 34.
0: Hmm. Was Alan Dershowitz involved in this as well?
1: He was one of Epstein's attorneys uh, from the very beginning. Uh, he, he, you know, early on uh, helped, you know, or was behind hiring some private investigators who really, um, t- you know, turned these girls' lives upside down. He found every little dark corner of their lives. They, they went into the, the private investigators managed to even get their social media pages, which at that time was uh, a, a page called MySpace, you know, the pre Cursor to Facebook. And, uh, you know, they were, the girls, of course, just like they do today, were talking about boys and sex and, you know, smoking marijuana and drinking beer. And, you know, you know, Dershowitz was quick to point out to the state prosecutor, look, these girls aren't going to be credible witnesses. Look what they're doing. You know, they're smoking pot. They're drinking beer. They're talking about sex. You know, uh, you know, they looked into the one of the girls. um his, her father was accused in some kind of a mortgage scheme, and even that was brought up. You know, that was in the file. Uh, and so they did everything that they could uh, under Dershowitz's time handling uh, the case early on to um, make these girls appear like they were basically uh, prostitutes.
0: But they were all minors, uh, and, and then they were told that what they had done was illegal,
1: Right. That's that's what they did, too. They, they led these girls to believe. And the, the prosecutor, um, Barry Krischer, this is the state prosecutor then, um, and his first uh, lead uh, prosecutor handling the case, uh, Lana Belovnik, uh Both of them, you know, told the lead detective in the case, Joey Carey, that they didn't think that this was a case that they could prosecute uh, because they didn't didn't think the girls were credible at all.
0: And then some of their stories were inconsistent, which uh, obviously damaged their credibility. But you say that they were not, they were prevented from going to court uh, and therefore not allowed to speak at the sentencing. But doesn't the Crime Victims' Rights Act dictate that victims must be informed of an impending deal?
1: Well, that's the debate, and it's still kind of um, raging even as we speak here because they are appealing this case now to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the argument that the victims made in this civil suit that they filed immediately after Epstein was sentenced, they filed a civil suit alleging that the deal was that was negotiated was illegal because it violated what's known as the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And this is a law that was passed by Congress that lists um, several requirements um, that prosecutors have to adhere to when it comes to, it's sort of like the Crime Victims' Bill of Rights. You know, you have to give them um, some kind of notice of hearings, for example, affecting Um, your case plea, plea hearings is in particular, there's a whole list of things that they have to adhere to. And of course they never notified the victims of this deal or gave them the opportunity to appear at his sentencing. But, but what uh, the, big sticking point here is because he was actually never charged in the federal system—remember, he got an immunity deal, which meant that they didn't prosecute him and he was never indicted—what the government is arguing essentially is they weren't victims because he was never actually charged. So it's sort of a legal
0: loophole. Did, because that, was, did that immunity died. extend to any potential co-conspirators without naming who they were?
1: Well, yeah, they were part of, of this strange, uh, extraordinary plea deal where they named, um, you know, four women who were uh, employees of Epstein who helped him uh, recruit girls and schedule girls were named in that, as well as uh, – you know, there's a line in there that says named and unnamed co-conspirators. And nobody, to my knowledge, knows who those unnamed co-conspirators were. And the idea that they would have put something, language like this, in that agreement is is just un- un- unbelievable, really, quite frankly.
0: Don't ch- most child sex offenders do time in Florida state prisons where they're often treated rather badly by other prisoners, while Epstein— was sentenced to 13 months in the Palm Beach County Jail and given a private wing. Wow. Right. Right. Well, and and, and also allowed work-release privileges, allowed to leave the jail six days a week for 12 hours a day. That's practically no punishment at all.
1: Right. And there were times that his, you know, he had his own private driver pick him up. And uh, there were times that they took him to his mansion in Palm Beach and he was allowed to spend time there. I mean, we really don't know all the places that, that they allowed him to go. He used excuse after excuse like, oh, I, I'm looking at, for a new office, so I have to drive around and look at properties. You know, there were all kinds of excuses that he was allowed in order to not um, really spend much time time behind bars, so to speak. And even when he was in the jail, he had his own private area. So he, he, you know, they treated him pretty well, you know.
0: After he served his 13 months, did Epstein resume his financial work?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that probably what he resumed was doing um, a lot of helping a lot of people hide their money. I mean, that seems to be what his specialty was. Essentially, it was a super duper money launderer. And, uh, you know, it was concerning, for example, to people with some of the banks he did business with, because they were aware that he had been accused of this serious crime and they could see money moving around all the time. And they, you know, felt that, something was going on although it wasn't until after he died that the bank actually and, the, and federal prosecutors actually looked at the banks to see what they you know what they knew and when they knew it so to speak
0: did he also resume soliciting and molesting underage girls
1: it's hard to know because after he died the estate for Jeffrey Epstein decided to put his pot of money into a fund uh, for victims and this victim's compensation fund uh, allowed you know potential women and girls, former girls to come in and stake a claim and this was all you know part of it was they could do this in secret they wouldn't have to go public in order to get a claim from the estate so we really don't know Uh, we know that there were over 100 probably close to 200
0: hmm. victims
1: who who you know put in a claim and received money from the estate but we don't know whether any of them were re- you know underage in, in recent years when you know after he got out of jail
0: you're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at wbai.org there ain't no into your homes. Put out your stands. Peek through your land. Call me your cat. I don't hey, you know that. We're back no with Julie K. Brown, who's written a book called Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story, published by Day Street. What got you started investigating this story?
1: Well, I had been covering Florida prisons for about four years, and one of the bigger investigations that I did was involving the women's prison in Florida, which is, at the time I did it, it was the largest women's prison in the in the country. And the abuse that was going on there, particularly uh, how the women were being coerced into having sex with the corrections officers. Mm. And I knew from talking to some of the victims uh, you know, in the prison system uh, that, that sex trafficking was a huge problem in Florida. And I wanted to do something on sex trafficking in Florida. And, and in the midst of my research, I stumbled upon this case, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein case. Ten
0: which, years but, after it had kind of been resolved.
1: Right. Well, in, I guess in some people's minds hmm. it was resolved in others it wasn't because, you know, I like I said, it had been covered but in my mind, with what I read, I, I still didn't understand how this happened. I mean, for a man to, you know, basically be able to uh, get not only uh, such a lenient plea deal, but to get such kid glove mm-hmm. treatment in, in, as part of his incarceration seemed unbelievable to me. And none of the stories that I read Uh, fully, fully explained to me how this happened. So I started just, um, you know, requesting documents and learning some things about the case, thinking, you know, sort of tinkering with the idea of maybe doing a story. And then uh, right around that time, Donald Trump Nominated Alex Acosta to be labor secretary. And of course, I knew that he was the prosecutor in Miami who had signed off on this lenient plea deal. And I expected that the Senate, in their confirmation hearings, would really grill him on this. And to my surprise, there were only, you know, a, a limited number of questions asked about it. And, and Acosta gave the same spiel that he gave every time he had been asked about it before, which didn't make any sense to me at, at all, his reasons for doing this, because he said, um, you know, that they didn't think that the girls uh, were going to be good witnesses. And, um, and I'd like to add, you mentioned earlier that there, the, the witness, the girl's stories. Uh, weren't consistent. The girls' stories were consistent. They described, and a lot of them didn't even know each other. I mean, that was one of the uh, pieces of this story that I think a lot of um, Acosta, for one, tried to say that the girls' stories were inconsistent. They weren't. The stories about what happened and how Epstein did it, how they were led up this spiral stairway, exactly what he did when he was in that room All their stories were very consistent. What sometimes hurt the girls was they were very afraid. They felt that Epstein, uh, you know, was going to harm them. He was very powerful. And some of them even gotten phone calls from from people warning them, if you cooperate, you're going to regret it. So they were afraid. So some of them recanted because they were scared. But their stories were
0: very consistent. Well, you were... uh taking up the case 10 years later. I assume uh, some of them had relaxed a bit. How were you able to track down the victims? Uh, hadn't uh, many of them moved or changed their names? Uh, you got advice from a therapist about how to approach them.
1: Well, I knew that they had, uh, I could see from researching them when I, you know, it took me a while to, to really f- get their names because these were all minors, so they were all redacted from all blacked out of all the police reports. So it was very hard. I had to really keep reading and reading for little clues. And then I would find maybe a last name and and no first name or a birth date. And I sort of it was like a big puzzle that I put together and I started putting a list together in a spreadsheet. And once I got like four, five, six of them Identified, I was able to get more because I went on their social media pages and a lot of these girls kept in contact with each other. Now they're, of course, in their late 20s. And so I eventually, it took me a while uh, to, you know, identify them and, and find out where they were. But in the course of doing all that, I could see that a lot of them had suffered a lot of uh, trauma, that, you know, they had been arrested. Some of them were in prison for on drug charges. Uh, A couple of them had died uh, from drug overdoses. So I could see that the paths of their lives uh, for many of them were, you know, were not, you know, were not good ones that they had suffered after this. So at that point, I thought before I start knocking on their doors or asking them to talk, I needed to do some research on my own on the best way to approach them. So I did talk to some um, experts on this, including you know some psychologists as well as a FBI expert on uh, who handled these kinds of uh, child abuse cases.
0: And then you also decided to... Uh, work with a visual journalist, a videographer named Emily Michaud, and shot a set a set of documentaries. Uh, w- yeah, were, yeah, they, they
1: were very powerful. In fact, I would argue that Emily um, Emily Michaud's documentaries were the most powerful part of the series. Would encourage any of your listeners; they can Google um, the the documentaries because they're they're just incredible. Uh, she did a wonderful job. It was very difficult. Uh, to sit for hours and listen to these girls. But their stories were incredibly powerful and I think that that's really uh, the main reason perhaps that, that prosecutors in New York uh, decided to revisit this case.
0: Michelle Licata was the first woman you interviewed. Um, was Were you the first person she'd ever spoken to about that part of her life?
1: Well, she had some very close friends who knew about it and you know, her family uh, eventually found out about it, um, but she had never spoken publicly about it ever before. And, you know, we were quite concerned because it was a very trying, you know, interview and we didn't know what to expect really. And when it was all over, I was so worried. She was going to say, look, I changed my mind because she had really poured uh, her heart out in our, in her interview. And, um what, it, what actually happened was she called us almost immediately, you know, and out maybe, you know, half hour later and said, I just don't know how to thank you enough. Hmm. I feel like a big, heavy boulder has been taken off my shoulders. I've been wanting to tell that story for a very long
0: time. One of the uh, women you write about is in the news again uh, because she's filed a lawsuit accusing Prince Andrew of sexual abuse and battery.
1: Yes. Virginia Giuffre had already uh, gone public in Britain with this story about how she was recruited by Ghislaine Maxwell in Palm Beach. In fact, in, in, at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago, where she was working as a spa attendant. And she uh, encountered Ghislaine Maxwell, who, of course, offered her a job as a full time masseuse for a very wealthy man. And she basically uh, got trapped into this um, life with Epstein and Maxwell. She had been trafficked, seriously trafficked. Uh, before in Miami, she had, she was a runaway and she'd been picked up by a sex trafficker in Miami and she lived a harrowing life even before she met Epstein. So by the time she got trapped with Epstein, she felt like, you know, essentially this was her life, you know, that she was never going to be able to get out of this. And during the course of her Uh, Being in Epstein's orbit, so to speak, she was, um, she says, directed to have sex with Prince Andrew.
0: I'm assuming that uh, any number of the the women involved had serious problems in the years after.
1: They, They all did. I mean, you don't go. It's impossible for something like that not to affect your life. What was really hard for me to watch Uh, was to to hear that how much they blame themselves Mm. they were so incredibly angry with themselves and so ashamed and that was hard to watch because of course I knew and I'm a mother myself uh, of a 22 year old girl I mean you're not you don't think the same way when you're 13 or 14 as when you're 20 years old You know, they a lot of them did not know what they were getting into, you know. And, you know, one girl, for example, told me, um, you know, woman, you know, when I talked to her, she said we were just stupid, stupid children. All I remember thinking at the time was that I was wearing a pair of shoes uh, the same size for three years. And I thought all I had to do is give a man a massage and I would finally be able to buy a pair of Mm -hmm. new shoes.
0: How did you decide uh, that you'd investigated enough and that it was time to publish your story in the Miami Herald in November 2018?
1: Well, that's actually a good question because I had an awful lot of material and an awful lot more information that I wanted to investigate because the deeper I dug into it, the more I learned and I thought, you know, I could— probably investigate this for another couple of years if I wanted to. But, you know, I'm in the daily newspaper business and, mm. you know, your editor is not going to wait forever for a story. And uh, so at some point you have to sort of, you know, decide what the four corners of the story would be. And for me, what I focused on, uh, which hadn't been focused on before, was the failure of the criminal justice system. Uh, there were a lot of articles that had been written about Epstein's celebrity connections, you know, the plane trips with Clinton and, you know, the money, the celebrity, all that kind of stuff had been focused on uh, by other journalists. But I didn't see any stories that really examined, I mean, took apart and examined the criminal justice system. So I focused on that. I kind of had to, you know, as I said, Define what the four corners of the stories were, the stories were going to be and, and really produce.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Julie K. Brown. Her book, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story published by Day Street. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. After the story was published, did Alexander Acosta um, resign from his job?
1: Well, it didn't happen that easily. (laughs) Unfortunately, I mean, uh, there were calls for it. But of course, you know, they were saying, well, you know, this happened a long time ago, you know, the same kind of thing that happened in the past in that they were saying, you know, the girls weren't really credible. They were trying to just bring these same arguments, uh, you know, over and over again. But but here's the one thing they never explained. Um, it, it, why did they have to seal the deal? If it was on the up and up, then just just let people see the deal. But they kept it secret for like a year before they made it public. So, you know, they've never addressed that. And I just kept writing stories. Um, it wasn't until Epstein was re-arrested that they that uh, Acosta then was forced to resign. I think he was intending to hold on to his, his post um it, you know, until he couldn't and he couldn't after uh, after Epstein was arrested, it was very clear he was not going to be able to keep that job.
0: do we know whether federal prosecutors opened the new criminal investigation because of the response to your articles?
1: Well, they opened it not because of the response, they opened it because they read the story. Mm-hmm. I mean uh, you and know, moved the told-
0: case from Florida to New York because it had already had been resolved in Florida.
1: Right, and there were uh, there was at least one new victim that they found in New York. I knew, you know, I knew that there had to be victims outside of Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a house in Manhattan, he had one in New Mexico, he had, you know, an island. So I knew that he had to be doing it elsewhere. And so, of course, they did find one victim, and I. They planned to mount, uh, you know, a strong uh, prosecution involving other victims outside of Palm Beach.
0: And then they searched his home and found extensive evidence of sex trafficking. Right. So he was arrested and charged July 2019. What charges were brought against him?
1: They were essentially, you know, sex uh, sex trafficking charges. Uh, But again, you know, it was sort of a question whether they were going to be successful given the, the the deal he had struck in Florida, so uh, they were sort of appe- appealing out for for other victims to come forward at this time, hoping they would get, I think, more victims from New York.
0: So he was convicted. How long was he jailed at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Manhattan?
1: Well, he was arrested. He wasn't convicted, but he was. Um, he was there just a little more than a month uh, when he, actually less than a month when he, when he was first found harmed in some way um, and taken to, and put placed on suicide watch, it's never been fully explained for certain exactly what happened when they found him unconscious in a cell. But he was we're assuming that, that he tried to commit suicide and they placed him on suicide watch and then you know he was released um back into a regular cell had a cellmate at the time he was supposed to keep an eye on him but for some reason they pulled that cellmate out and uh, we know exactly you know everybody knows the story how he was found he allegedly uh, hanged himself
0: and um the medical examiner ruled in August 2019 that it was suicide, but many have questioned that. What do you think?
1: Well, I, you know, I I can only base it on what I know, and I've interviewed um, his brother, and I've interviewed the forensic pathologist, uh, Dr. Michael Bodden, who was at the autopsy. Uh, his brothers and his his estate hired um, Bodden to. Participate, you know, and view the autopsy. And Boden um, did not conclude that, that he died of, um, of suicide by hanging. In fact, it was Boden that kind of de- detailed how uh, they found three bones broken in Epstein's neck, hmm. which, is, you know, you have to really use a lot of force to do that. And the way that he, you know, the it was described that he hanged himself was by tying a sheet to the top bunk of his bed. And Baden said, there's no way there would have been enough velocity for him to just throw himself on the floor to, to break his neck with such force. And so uh, Boden firmly believes that it was not a suicide, uh, whether it was an assisted suicide, you know, I haven't covered prisons for a long time. It, wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that he could have paid somebody to to do it for him him. Um, or whether someone paid another inmate to Mm. to often, you know, that that happens. It does happen in in prison. So we really don't know. And the authorities, uh, you know, still have two open investigations into his deaths. uh, And we you know, now it is. Two years later, and we still don't know.
0: Uh, did uh, then Attorney General William Barr get involved? W- wouldn't that have been highly unusual?
1: He he went right to uh, the roommate. Apparently, interviewed the former cellmate. I should say. Uh, you know, he he yeah he questioned a, a couple of people in that prison. Uh, we don't really know exactly why he did that um, or or what. You know, what he got out of that, what kind of what kind of statements he got from that. But, yeah, it's not every day that you have, you know, the U.S. Attorney General uh, getting directly involved in an inmate's death.
0: Since his death eliminated the possibility of pursuing criminal charges, didn't a judge dismiss all criminal charges against Epstein?
1: Yeah, it was just a formality, really, because you just can't leave an indictment sitting, I guess, in the mm-hmm. system. So it was basically a formality that they, you know, just dropped the, drop the charges.
0: But Galen Maxwell was arrested uh, last year, July 2020. What's the status of her case?
1: Well, she's hired, a, you know, she's taking a page out of the Jeffrey Epstein uh, defense playbook and that she's hired a number of high-powered lawyers who— have ties to the Justice Department, former former federal prosecutor, uh, and they are mounting an aggressive defense of her. You know, of course, they're going to argue that she is one of the unnamed co-conspirators from the Florida case. Uh, although, you know, I. I one of the at least one of the victims i think more than one but at least one of the victims uh, she she wasn't connected to the florida pyramid scheme so you know they have other victims who were abused elsewhere like in new york and, and other places so it'll be interesting to see what happens at trial because of course there's all this speculation that she knows where all the skeletons are and that it's possible she could have some very damaging information on some very powerful people.
0: Now, I only have about a minute and a half left, but I want to address another thing. An underlying theme of your book is the importance of local journalism. Why was the Miami Herald able to investigate this story in a way that the New York Times or the Washington Post couldn't? And uh, are you concerned about the decline in local newspapers Does that make it easier for people like Epstein to get away with their crimes?
1: Well, absolutely. uh, The the decline of local uh, newspapers is really damaging to our democracy in a lot of different ways. I mean, newspapers are the watchdogs of your government. And if you don't have one in your community, there's nobody watching where your money is going or who is corrupting. Uh, your government. So that's that's one thing. The Miami Herald has a long, really storied history of going after stories that are pretty tough. I mean, it's just part of our legacy that we the newspaper has always done that. I mean, we we broke the um, uh, I can't remember the monkey business with one of the presidential Gary His name is escaping me, but but, uh, we broke the Iran-Contra scandal, for example. So these were national stories that had a Miami angle to them. And, of course, Epstein was one of those stories as well. So, you know.
0: And I have to leave it there, unfortunately. But it's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show, Julie K. Brown. Thank you. The book, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story, it's published by Day Street. And that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, special thanks to segment producer Debrie Freeman who prepared the segment today. Uh, I'd also like to thank live engineer Reggie Johnson and Leonard Lopez, at large executive producer Jesse Lent for all of their work throughout the week. If you're new to our program and like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Also, You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you'll find links at, uh, to our over 500 shows at leonardlopateatlarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. It's sad, but WBAI is still experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and we're asking anyone who who isn't already supporting the station, please go online to give to wbaiorg or to call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 and become a member. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or or any topic that you haven't, thought much about uh, this deeply before. We uh, we devote an hour to topics that generally get short shrift, no matter how important they are, on other, on other shows and other stations. So do it for us, do it for WBAI, do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And one very helpful way to contribute is become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, that means that you would give us $10, $15 a month, and as long as you want to do that. And it gives us an opportunity to know that we have some regular financial support. But however you donate, the important thing is to take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by making that call, 212-209-2950, or go to to give2wbai.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large From all of us at the station, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again on Monday when Lee McIntyre, a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History and Science at Boston College, will discuss his new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.